Tonight's readings are from the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you pray with me? Father, we pray in the fullness of your person, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would inhabit your word. We pray that you would come and meet with each one of us as we need you. And we want to thank you for the faith that you've handed down through generations that feeds and saves our soul today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This evening, we're going to continue on in our series on theology and life. And this may be one of the hardest topics to address. Not because it's controversial, but because most people don't care about it. Right? Um, It's usually, when we talk about creeds and confessions, immediately we think of dead dogma, or maybe worse, oppressive traditions upon the lives of people throughout history. But the truth is, creeds and confessions are alive and well today. I see them every day. Yesterday I was walking my dog and I came up and saw on a door, one of my neighbor's doors, that said, rise, love, and resist. Or as I'm going to the metro, I pass a sign that says, in this house we believe that black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. These are creeds. These are confessions. And so the the question isn't, do you have a creed? The question is, are you aware of your creed? What creed do you live by? Because we all have them. And the same could be said for tradition, which we can quickly dismiss. I came across an interesting article in the Huffington Post, and I thought the writer, she did a wonderful job in uh, highlighting the beauty of tradition and the power of it. This is what she wrote. I think there is a real beauty to be found in tradition. It is not that tradition is saying, do not question, do not grow, do not change. Rather, it is saying, remember, think, but remember, 
Question, but remember. Grow and change, but remember. Remember who we are as humans, where we came from, and how we can take the knowledge, wisdom, and experiences transmitted to us from generations afar to live a more beautiful and more meaningful life. In many ways, uh, I felt like maybe she's been influenced by what the Bible has said about tradition. What you find repeatedly, the word remember. God says to Israel, remember my commandments. Remember that you were once a slave and an alien. So that will fuel your justice. Remember the wondrous works of God. Remember the steadfast love of God. Remember. Remember. And these remembrances often take the form of creeds and confessions. Now the word creed we get from a Latin word, credo, which means I believe. This uh, morning I had my uh, Spotify on shuffle and I was listening to some you know, worship music, some worship writers, because that's what preachers do all the time. <laughs> all the time we do that. No, Sunday and, you know, um, takes my mind off of working out because I'm in incredible pain. Um, but the song that came up, the song lyric that came up is, I believe what I believe because it makes me who I am. That's true. What, what you believe is making you who you are. This is why creeds and confessions are important because, one, you've got a creed and a confession, whether you realize it or not, and it is shaping you in this very moment, your beliefs. So, it's worthwhile looking at creeds and confessions. So I, I want to do it by way of two points, uh, the priority of them, and then the profit or the benefit of them. Okay, let's do that together. So the priority of creeds and confessions. Um, one way to think about creeds and confessions are they're like a tool. They're a tool to help you learn. They're a tool by which a, a lot of content can be shared in a concise way so you can get your head around it. And there's something that God knew as human beings, we need it. It's a way that we learn. And so we find uh, one of the most famous creeds and confessions in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And if you go into the New Testament, you'll find that repeated in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of James, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself will refer to that confession. What does that tell us? They were learning their confession in their creed. And in the New Testament, we find some as well. Maybe you've read this before. Maybe this is new to you. But in 1 Timothy, Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's a creed that early Christians and believers would remind themselves of. And the same emphasis upon public confession. I was thinking, in films, these are some of our most favorite moments. When someone confesses publicly, maybe it's they profess, confess their love. It's that point in the movie, right, where they finally say it, right? 
you had me at hello. You know, just those moments. And uh, some of you may remember the film Dead Poets Society. I'm just curious, how many of you have seen that film? All right. Okay. So some films sort of, you know, linger on. But, you know, it's about an, an English teacher, Robin Williams, who gives his students much more than poetry. He really emboldens them. But then he gets fired. I won't ruin the, the well, I guess I just did. But anyway, <laughs> he gets let go. But at the end, the most move, you know, moving part is the students get up on their desks and say, Captain, oh, my captain. Right? They make their confession. You find a similar thing. We had it as our Old Testament reading. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in His ways. And the Lord has declared today. That's the beautiful thing about it. You see, when we make our creeds and confessions, it's not to an empty universe. We're making them to a divine lover. We're making them to a father. We're making them to a great king. As we make our confession, the Lord Himself confesses back His creed. I will be your God and you will be my people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. The confession of God for His people. And then we read one from the New Testament, right? Where Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Make the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And Jesus Himself said this, so everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess before My Father. But those that deny Me, I will deny And so it's not surprising as the church grew and developed, it had creeds and confessions. The Apostles' Creed is one of the earliest ones we have, second century. It likely wasn't written by the Apostles, but it was something that was drawn from the Apostles' teaching. The Nicene Creed and the Athanasius Creed in the fourth and fifth century, those were all about defending who God is. That God is three in one, that God is Trinity. He is one substance, but three persons. And that the Son of God and the Spirit of God are not like God, they are God. Pretty important topic, right? If you're going to know who God is. And then the definition of Chalcedon in 451 was about who Christ is. That He is God-man. Divine nature, human nature. These were important moments where false teaching arose And God rallied His people. And the way they combated these things, the way they did their warfare, was through creeds and confessions. It's a way that people could understand. And then later you have uh, theological confessions. In the Reformed tradition, of which this church is a part, you have the Belgic Confession in 1500. And this was written at a time, written throughout the Netherlands, when the Catholic Church was persecuting Protestants. And so the Protestants said, we're going to write down what we believe so they know we're not just totally off the wall here. And in it they said something I think that's instructive for us. They said, listen, we affirm we will obey the laws of the nation, but we will offer They will offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession. Would you die for your beliefs? Would you die for your faith? 
Is it something that compelling? Actually, the author of the Belgian Confession did die. He was martyred just a couple years later. And then we're given the Heidelberg Catechism, another gift that God gives. It's one of my favorites because it's so heart-driven, so devotional. Frederick III, who is a Christian and a very influential prince, said, you know, it would be nice if pastors had some way to teach youth. And so some of you may know this first question. It's so famous. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Boy, you know, if we could all believe that this week, we'd be a lot less stressed, right? And then in the 1600s, the Canons of Dort were written. Now, a couple weeks ago, Andrew talked about the five points of Calvinism. And, you know, the five points of Calvinism weren't just sort of like a bunch of angry Calvinists sitting around going, we're going to write five points and everybody's going to know what we believe. You know, in fact, if you want to understand what Calvinism is, it's much broader and bigger than those five points. Those five points were actually a response to five other points. The five points of remonstrance, or I don't know how you say it actually in French, remonstrance. That that sounded like a good option for the other one, didn't it? So, uh, but, you know, they were there to combat what was theological error. And then lastly, a confession that holds as a standard of this church, the Westminster Confession. You know, what's interesting is these things were written in times of like war and conflict and theological battle. I mean, not just theological battle, but cultural battle. Now, you know, we can all acknowledge that things can get really dangerous when people want to institute a theocracy, right? God has instituted three things, the state, the family, and the church, and they're not supposed to get all mingled up. But at the same time, this was a time where I would argue that people understood the implications of their religious beliefs better than we do today. Because there was a lot on the line. And so as England and Ireland and Scotland are revving up for conflict, Parliament calls together 121 theologians. They work for five years. They meet over a thousand times. Episcopalians, Presbyterians, independents. And they get together and they think about what the Bible teaches. And each one every week had to hear uh, you know, a declaration about what the assembly was about. And each one had to say this vow before they could be part of the assembly. I do seriously promise and vow in the presence of Almighty God, I will maintain nothing in the point of doctrine but what I believe to be most agreeable to the Word of God. And what, what might make most for God's glory? And that's a confession that Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, you know, for hundreds of years, have used. Now, one of the things that, uh, the critique that's most often brought, and I think it's fair, is, but, but creeds are the work of men, They're man-made. And doesn't that threaten the primacy being on the Word of God, the Word of Jesus speaking? And that's a very important thing to pay attention to because creeds are culturally situated. 
you know, they were writing in part to the issues of their day. But there is still a kernel and a center to these things that has endured for a long time. And I'll get to that in a moment. And this is the power. The closer the creed is to this book, the more powerful it is. That's why creeds actually have power and confessions have power. Because as they reflect the Bible, they bring something to you and I. So that's a little bit about place of creeds and confessions. But I want to end with just three reasons why I think they're beneficial and profit. The first one is it anchors people in true belief. You can have lots of beliefs, but there's false beliefs and true beliefs. Now, we live in a time where independent thought is valued above all other things. I mean, you know, someone can write a blog, and that blog gets as much cred as a history book or a book that a scholar has read. We value independent thought. But every now and then you have to ask, how wise is that? C.S. Lewis wrote this essay once, and it was called On the Reading of Old Books. And he said this, listen, I'm a modern writer. He was writing in the 60s at the time. I'm a modern writer, and I want you to buy my books. But here's the truth. My books are still on trial. And all modern books are still on trial. Meaning they haven't endured the test of time, of critique over time, of evaluation over the time. So he actually would say, so I want to urge you for every new book you read, read two old ones. So that you might understand that maybe the thing that you have will be more enduring. There's some wisdom there, I think. Most every cult that I've ever interacted with, they all have this as their premise. We're going to go back to the Bible and figure out what it really says. They usually go to the book of Acts. But it's not long they go off the rails. This happened in the 17th century with the Socinians. They said, we're going to figure out what the Bible really says. And they ended up you know, throwing the Trinity out, the deity of Jesus out, the atonement of Jesus out. There's basically the whole faith. Why? Because beliefs that are beliefs that are distilled through many years and many people are beliefs that really can be valuable to us. Right? The wisdom of ages. You see a model of this in the book of Acts, chapter 15. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, are flooding into the church, and conflict comes up around the question is, should the Gentiles need to become somewhat culturally Jewish to be accepted as Christians? And so the Council of Jerusalem assembles. The leaders, the apostles, come together in Acts 15. And they consider the issue and they render a judgment. And that judgment becomes binding upon the church. There you have our first council. The Presbyterian form of government follows that sort of thing. We've got a session. That's a local group of pastors and elders. And then you've got a presbytery. That's the regional group of elders. And then you've got the General Assembly the national group of elders, and each is a court. Each evaluates. And so this idea is, you know, you are sitting there and uh, you're constantly evaluating, is this true? Is this cohere with the, the word of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus? But there are two other things that I think are really critical about this, anchored to orthodoxy, anchored to truth. One is, Creeds give us a glimpse of what theological maturity looks like. 
right? Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I know a lot of people that know a lot of creeds and confessions, and they're not spiritually mature. Notice I said theologically mature, right? But they give us a vision of what it means to go deeper in your faith. And so as you read a theological creed, it's actually a mirror back to you going, have you grown in your faith? Have you grown since college in what you believe significantly? The writer of Hebrew, you know, mourned the fact that his, his audience, he said, it's like i got to keep giving you baby food, and I want to give you something more significant. And so our creeds and confessions help us along that way, but most importantly, they get us to love. Now, this is, I think, the biggest stretch for us. We would think, how in the world would a confession or a creed create love? Well, I hope you heard our New Testament reading where Paul said this, God gave teachers to equip the saints in the work of ministry. Why did he do that? So that we will attain the unity of faith and knowledge. So if you've ever wondered how can we become more one together as a community and one as a capital C church, a lot of times what folks will say is, let's just get the theology aside and we'll do it that way. Well, you'll have oneness, but it'll, it'll be very, you know, It'll hardly be worth having. But rather, Paul says it's actually you and I go into those teachings, we attain unity together. It protects us from being tossed around by false teachings, by every wind of doctrine. It it, it protects us from manipulative people that use spiritual teachings to to exploit people. It protects you from that. But it does two things, he says. One... It opens us our eyes to the body of Christ where we see every member. We see that people are different than me. We also see that the body of Christ can't work unless everybody's honored. And it grows us up finally, he says, into love. And so you see, a good creed or confession isn't just sitting there. It is pushing us toward unity, guarding us from error, driving us to see the beauty of the community of Christ and moving us towards love. That's what he says in Ephesians. Community health and effective love. Unity, which we just sang about. So that's the first one. Second two are shorter. The profit and benefit of creeds. I said anchor us in true belief. The other is they encourage honesty and transparency. Um, if you go to a church and you, a church and you say, uh, what do you believe about the end times? What do you believe about salvation? And they say this, we believe what the Bible teaches. Run. Because they haven't told you anything, right? They haven't told you anything. We believe what the Bible teaches. Well, I think everybody says that. You know, what do you really believe? And there may be some churches that say we have no creed but Christ. But, you know, at the risk of sounding cranky, um, you know, that's either superficial or naive. Because every church has a creed. It might be invisible. It might be the leaders. They talk about it all the time. You just hang out. Every church has a culture. Every church has beliefs. Every church has a theological system. Is the church aware of it? And so when you lay out your beliefs for someone in a creed, there's a couple things it does. It allows people to examine them. 
It's transparent. It allows people coming in going, oh, this is what you believe. Now I know I don't want to come here. But at least they know it. It makes you open to correction. Because people see your confession and creed and they can speak into it. They can say, you know, is that really right? And thirdly, it delimits church power abuse. Because that creed puts limits and boundaries on the leaders. What they teach, what they say. And so the congregation themselves can go, wait a second, you're out of line with this confession. And in the Presbyterian form of government, you can say, we're going to go to the Presbytery about that. And so, creeds and confessions foster transparency and honesty. Lastly, they provide stability and security. Um, When you and I get anxious about life, it's usually because we've had a loss of truth. Now, there's a difference between being concerned, right? I mean, it's okay to be concerned. We live in a, a scary world, right? We're not robots. But there's a difference from concern and worry and anxiety. And anxiety means there's always been a loss of truth first. You know, maybe it's this idea that I'm, I'm going to, uh, if I lose, if I don't perform at work, I might get fired. And if I might get fired, I'm going to be out on the street. No one's going to pay attention to me. I'm, you know, there's all these things that would be preaching to you. You don't have a father in heaven. You don't have a provider. You're not a beloved son or daughter, right? There's a loss of truth. Truth impacts the emotions. Uh, the theologian B.B. Warfield recounts this story. and I'm gonna, it, It's brief. I'm going to read it to you. It's about a general officer in the army, and I'm guessing this was in the 1800s. He says, He, a general officer of the U.S. Army, was in a great western city at the time of intense excitement and violent rioting. The streets were overrun daily by dangerous crowds. One day he observed approaching him a man of singular singularly combined calmness and firmness of mind, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned back to look at him, only to find that the stranger had done the same thing. On observing his turning, the stranger at once came back to him and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded without preference, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, he said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter shorter catechism boy by your looks. (laughs) Why, that was just what I was thinking of you. You know, very interesting antidote, right? But this idea that it matters what you and I believe. It matters what you believe about God's sovereignty when you get bad news about your niece or nephew or your child, right? It matters even what you believe about God for loving you before the foundation of the, uh, the world when you feel like you're on the performance treadmill over and over. It matters what you believe. Your creed is shaping you. Your confession actually might make a difference tomorrow in what you feel and how you think. So, I want to encourage you... Um, you know, I listed a couple different things, whether it's Nicene Creed, whether it's the Athanasius Creed, the Canons of Dort, whether uh, it would be the Heidelberg Catechism, maybe it would be the Belgic Confession. But you would take a creed this week and read a little bit and ask yourself the question, how could this lead to unity, love, 
peace. How could this help? I'm not saying that these creeds are perfect. I'm not saying that they're the only good creeds in Christendom. But God meant us to be people of the confession and people of the creed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that have been handed down to us throughout generations, faithful traditions handed down to us, and the way they get us into relationship with you. I pray that you would help us to grow in our faith. In Christ's name, amen.